Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 14 in our Peter Bible Study Podcast and our fourth and final episode in the book of 2 Peter. This episode is entitled, Preparing for the Day of the Lord where we'll discuss 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? What an overwhelming chapter we're about to study. There are some things that Peter teaches us here about the future of the world that are just staggering in their implications, that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, and that the elements will melt in the heat, and that God is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And then practically, for us, we're going to have one of the greatest two journeys verses in the entire Bible, as Peter tells us, how should we live given the fact that everything that we see Hmm. with our eyes is temporary, everything's going to be Hmm. destroyed and melt in the heat, what kind of people should we be? And Peter answers that with the two journeys. Doesn't use that language, but that's what it is. We ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And the way we do that is by evangelism, by winning the elect people that God has chosen. So we're going to talk about all that. We have a lot of massive themes to talk about in this chapter today. Well, I'm excited to dig in. And so that we can have a sense of the passage as a whole, I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1-18. through 18. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace." And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, 
as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Andy, what do verses 1 and 2 teach us about the role of reminders in the teaching ministry of the church? And why do you think God's people need so many reminders mm. of the things they've already been taught? Yeah, I think the answer to the second question is just that we're forgetful, and that forgetful is, forgetfulness is often seen as sinful, culpable. We should know by now. Mm. We shouldn't need this level of reminder. But some of it just has to do with the nature of our minds, our brains. Uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul tells us the treasure being the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So our, our brains are jars of clay. We, uh, when we get weary, when we're tired, when we're distracted, when life gets busy, we forget things. Things fade from being foremost in our minds and, they, and we need reminders. And so some of it is culpable, sinful, and some of it isn't. It's just the nature of our limitations. And so therefore, a good teaching ministry, a good preaching ministry will have lots of reminders. Mm -hmm. They're the central facts of the gospel of Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, of justification by faith alone, repentance and faith. These things are milk, they're the basics, but you have to go over them again and again. But then there are other things that are more details or aspects of the Christian life that are not so um, prominently taught. They're taught in numbers of places and we hear them but we forget them and we need these reminders and so Peter uh, is specifically saying that it's good to stir up the minds of the people by um, by reminders so that they think in a pure way in a wholesome way mm. and he, he just wants to them to remember so a lot of what I teach when I preach on Sunday mornings you know my sermons are a little over 40 minutes in general most of the things that I'm saying most of the people there have heard it said in that way sometime before. But I don't shrink back from it, still remind people. That's good. Now what specifically does Peter want his readers to remember in verse 2? And what does this verse teach about the authority of the apostles' doctrine? All right, so uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets mm. with Christ Jesus himself with his chief cornerstone. I've always taken that to, to refer to, to written scripture um, and so the words of the prophets, he wants them to recall the words of the prophets, um, the things spoken in the past by, you know, by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Moses and all those things. So I, said, I want you to know the words of the Old Testament. That was the Bible in the apostolic era. But then the apostles themselves are uttering things, and he's going to talk later in this exact same chapter about Paul's writings being scripture. He's going to say a very significant statement. So there's this accumulation of what eventually came to be known as the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. Peter wants them to remember the words of the apostles and the words of the prophets, uh, the commands given by Jesus through the apostles. And the command, um, it's singular here, the command given, um, but there it branches out into, into all the commands. So for example, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. So it's not like we only need to listen to one command and all the rest we can let slide. No, no, no. He wants, uh, Peter wants his heroes, heroes to be co uh, comprehensively obedient to the word of Christ. Now, how does the warning that Peter gives ahead of time that scoffers will come mm -hmm. help to blunt the negative impact that their ridicule would have? Yeah, this is a very important issue. It's, it's, um, it, it comes up in Psalm 1. Um, 
you know, where the righteous man is, is contrasted with the mocker, the scoffer. And so that's, that's just one of the numbers of ways that unbelievers persecute believers in this world. They can become very hostile and aggressive and insulting, or they can laugh and mock at you. Um, and it's very, it's very destabilizing to have your views the, the focus of ridicule. And so scoffers and mockers are going to come, and they're going to mock every aspect of Christianity, but he's about to talk about the day of the Lord, mm -hmm. the, the future, and they're gonna mock that too, and he'll talk about how they mock it. But fundamentally, what all they're doing is following their lusts. They, they want to live uh, carnal, wicked, lustful lives, and the gospel message gets in the way of that. And so one of their weapons, their demonic weapons, is ridicule, mm. mockery, laughter. Uh, they did it to Jesus. They said, he who saved others, he can't save himself. Come down from the cross. You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days and save yourself. This is mockery. This is the kind of thing that uh, we Christians have to face. And it seems like the scoffers in verse 4 zero in on, on the sameness of things, right? That right. They've, they've carried on in the same way since, uh, since the beginning. Yeah. How could the sameness of time that they kind of zero in on, the unfolding of hours, days, mm -hmm. and years, lull people into a false sense of security concerning mm -hmm. the end of the world? Yeah, well, they don't really see the goodness of God in all of this. You know, the entire, <clears throat> you know, the providence of God, part of his providence is to uphold the original created order that he made. He sustains it. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. So in other words, things are maintained in their present order, in their present pattern, by the goodness and grace and power of God. And you could imagine how destabilizing it would be as if you woke up every morning to an entirely new world, a whole new set of conditions and criteria. You're, you're basically like an infant every day. Mm. You couldn't grow and develop. You couldn't, couldn't learn anything. The entire scientific endeavor would end because the scientific formulae and principles you learned yesterday are no longer valid. They don't work in this new world, etc. God doesn't do that. He upholds um, a status quo, uh, like a, a blank canvas on which we can paint our lives. And so there's some stability. But that then, as you said, lulls people into thinking the way it has been is the way it always will be. Mm. And as centuries are unfolding, as years are unfolding, things are changing. They are tran being transformed. They're moving to a destination. And we Christians believe in a linear view of history. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Jesus said. There is an Alpha day or an A day and a Z day. We're going from A to Z. And we are making progress toward that. But they don't see that. It's very gradual. There's some gradualism. There are some epoch-making events. But mostly it just goes on. Mm. Tuesdays are Tuesdays. Wednesdays are Wednesdays. There's a kind of a sameness. And they don't see the goodness of God in that. But they don't see also the warning that we're going to a specific destination. So because there hasn't been a cataclysmic end of the world up to this point, there never will be. How illogical is that? That's a one-off anyway. That's the, the right. definition of an outlier. It's only going to happen once. Yeah. And because it's never happened up to this point, it will never happen is illogical. Right. And, and end seems to imply... It's over. The end, right. <laughs> yeah. So that this will only happen once yeah. at the end of that. So they're lulled into a false security. And here's yeah. the thing. We have to fear for our unsaved friends, 
relatives, co-workers, neighbors. They don't fear sufficiently. Mm -hmm. They're not afraid of where we're going. We should be afraid on their behalf and then preach the gospel to them. Now, how do verses five and six answer scoffers? And what does the flood of Noah have to do with this foretaste of, of final judgment? Well, first of all, Peter says they, they willfully, they deliberately forget God in all of this. They're forgetting that God is the issue, and therefore their, their ungodly lives, their unholy lives, are, they're going to be called to account for that. So they're forgetting also that God created all things. By faith, we believe that the heavens were created and the earth were created by the word of God, the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11. I think it is, um, so that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. The word of God preceded physical creation. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be an earth, and there's an earth. So they're forgetting God created everything by his powerful word. They, they're choosing to forget this. And so uh, creation is uh, you know, away from their mind. They don't think about God's word creating things. Mm. And he talks about water in particular because I think he, he thinks a lot about Noah. He talks mm -hmm. about Noah a lot. So I think he has in mind here the flood. And they're forgetting um, that God is in charge of the waters, the waters above from the waters below. That's the heavens, the sky with clouds and rain clouds and all that. And the waters below, which uh, refers to the seas, oceans, the rivers, the lakes. God's separated those. God's in charge of all that. Mm. And at the right time, he chose to bring a devastating worldwide cataclysmic flood, which ended all air-breathing life on earth, except for what was on Noah's Ark. So Peter is bringing up that one-off, once-for-all-time water flood that Jesus tells us people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage right up to the day Noah entered the ark. They thought things would go on as they always had. And so in that sense, they're forgetting how suddenly the world at that time ended. Mm. And the next one is going to be different. Yeah. And Peter makes this connection when he says in verse 7, by the same word, so the same word that mm -hmm. did all of that, the power, the will, the command of God, mm -hmm. uh, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. What is, what is Peter trying to communicate in verse 7 in light of what we just well, talked about in 5 is, and 6? It is really powerful, this idea of fire, the fire that's coming, mm. and the heavens and earth burning. And he's going to later say the elements. Your translation said the heavenly bodies. That's interesting. It's a Greek word, stoicheia. We'll talk about that in, in due time. But um, I'll stick with the idea of elements melting in the heat. So there's there's uh, there's an intrinsic fire that's coming that is going to cause everything to be destroyed. You know, I, I've never forgotten this little this little rhyme, this little ditty that really sets very well in these verses. Mm. Uh, came from I think years ago, a black preacher. Uh, thinking about Noah, Noah's Ark, and when he got off the Ark, there was the the rainbow, um, and God, you know, set that rainbow in in the sky. And here's how the ditty goes: God gave Noah a rainbow sign. No more water, fire next time. Mm. That's pretty sobering when you think about it. It's never going to be another flood. God promised He would not do that. The next one that's coming is worse. Mm more devastating. Mm. So the idea here is the scoffers are scoffing because it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Well, they did the same thing in the days of Noah. Yeah. And they're going to do that until this cataclysm comes. And so he says, by the same word, by the word of God, everything to Peter, everything comes down to the word of God. Mm. By God's word, he created the heavens and the, and the earth. By God's word, he unleashed 
a cataclysmic flood, by God's word, a fire is going to come when he says it's time. And one more thing, the purpose of that is the day of judgment and the destruction of the wicked. That's mm -hmm. what's coming. So it's not willy-nilly, it's not for no reason. It's not just because it had to end sometime. It's mm -hmm. not that. It's a specific judgment on ungodly people as it was in the days of Noah. Yeah, a display of God's justice. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now Peter says uh, in a statement that uh, many will be familiar with, with the mm -hmm. Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Mm -hmm. How does this give us insight into God's perspective on time, and how does it relate to Jesus' statement, Behold, I am coming soon? Mm. Wow. 2 Peter 3.8. <laughs> this is an amazing <laughs> verse. All right, first of all, God is eternal. He is mm. above time. Um, time is not daunting for him or off-putting. Um, and so uh, he, he's just above. He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He, he saw every moment in human history perfectly clearly before he said, let there be light. And not only that, in heaven, when all human history has finished, he sees all of the past events perfectly clearly as though they were happening right now. That's God's eternality. He is above and be infinitely above time. Um, he does deal with us in time. So he knows we're time-bound creatures. And so he gives us sweet fellowship and, and intimacy with him when we confess our sins. He restores that fellowship, even though he knows 12 hours later we'll do the exact same sin. So he deals with us in time because that's how we are. And so it's amazing how God kind of steps down into time and deals with that. But this statement gives us a sense of his perspective on time. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, part A. Part B, a thousand years is like a day. So let's take the second half because it seems to be the more famous of the two. I don't know why that is, but it's like, oh, it's just been like two days since Jesus ascended to heaven. 2,000 years, that's like two days. That's like nothing. So it goes to your statement, your question. Behold, I'm coming soon. To him it is soon. Mm -hmm. And when, it, when we're compared to eternity, the timelessness of heaven, as in when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Uh, it's just crazy. I remember reading in a history book by H.G. Wells, he was talking about giving, giving his readers a sense of eternity. I don't think he was a Christian at all, but <laughs> he said, picture a massive mountain, the highest mountain in the world, and it's made up of tiny little pebbles, tiny little individual pebbles, this whole rock made up of pebbles. And um, once a year, a bird comes and takes one pebble and flies away and dumps it somewhere. When that mountain has been leveled completely, that's one day of eternity. So it's like he's just trying to boggle your mind. <laughs> Break your brain. <laughs> Breaking your brain. So that's eternal. So compared to that, what is a thousand years mm. to God? That's like nothing, like an evening past. Mm. That's what, that quick. All right, now let's look at the other side though. Mm. With the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years, like a millennium. So what does that mean? Every single day, today is a Monday for us. It is a Monday. This Monday God sees the events happening on planet Earth with 7.8 billion people as though everything were happening in, in infinitesimally super slow motion. Every glance of the eye, every inclination of the heart by every human being alive on planet Earth, he notes it, 
sees it, ponders it as though time were stopped at that instant. That's what God's like. And so imagine what Judgment Day would be like if you didn't have a Savior. Mm. And then in my book on heaven that I wrote and we've talked about on another podcast, what it's going to be like to look back over over 6,000 years of redemptive history where every day was like a 1,000 years and the details that will flow from the omniscient mind of God when he will teach us things he did, it's, it never ends. The interconnections will never end. It's just staggering. Hmm. That's history. So Second Peter 3, 8. That's all. Okay. Well, you <laughs> asked. <laughs> I know. I'm just sitting here. It's like, man, it just, it's so good for our minds to be expanded mm-hmm. by God's word and our perspective on him to not make him like us. Mm-hmm. Not to not bring him down to our level, even though he graciously mm-hmm. uh, condescends, like you said, to our time-boundness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, wow, it just is. to worship God for his eternality. Amen. So, pressing on then into verse 9, what does verse 9 teach us about the apparent slowness of God in mm-hmm. keeping his promises? Mm-hmm. What's the reason for the long delay? Well, he's very plain. The reason is salvation. Mm-hmm. The reason he's waiting, he's waiting for the elect to be saved. And that's what's going on here. He's not slow. <clears throat> First of all, the day is fixed. It's set. All the days ordained for our lives were written in his book before one of them came to be. Well, how could it be that all the days for our lives were written in his book before one of them came to be, but the days of planet Earth were not written in his book before one of them? That's just not possible. So the day is fixed. It's set. It's not changing. Um, and so it's going to come when it comes. And what he's waiting for, it seems, is the salvation of the elect. Now, why do I say the elect? Uh, Well, the Bible reveals that God has chosen before the foundation of the world by name those who will be his Jacobs, those who will be his vessels of mercy. He knows each of them by name. And as Paul says in 2 Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Uh, The whole spread of the gospel is so that the elect in every nation in every generation will most certainly be saved. Mm -hmm. He's waiting for them, some of them perhaps, we don't know, but some of them perhaps to be born. Or maybe even he's waiting for their parents to be born. He's got a plan for everything. So he's not slow. It's not like, oh, we missed the train. Um, no, I mean, it, everything's on, on schedule. But he is waiting for people to come to repentance. Now, some of the people are alive mm-hmm. and they're unconverted. And they've heard the gospel. And they're hardening their hearts. And God has to break them. And bring them through misery and sorrow and various afflictions. And then they come to faith in Christ. That's going to happen in 11 years, 3 weeks and 2 days and 4 hours. He knows exactly the timetable for every everyone. So the point of all the so-called waiting or delay is people to be saved. He is patient, not wanting any of his elect to perish, mm. but everyone to come to salvation. Now some people use this verse in an Arminian sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I think that's anyone. helpful. Sure. All right. So um, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Some people say in a kind of a free will sense that God has an equal desire to save every human being that, that lives on planet Earth, <laughs> which means, of course, that he is um, you know, a big time failure in terms of that ultimate achievement. He say, and those that believe in free will say it's not his failure. He has chosen to let people make those decisions mm-hmm. for themselves. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting for them to come to repentance. He's also waiting for the church to get its act together and go share the gospel. He's doing a lot of waiting and and he's dealing with sinful people, both messengers and those who receive the message alike. And it just takes a long time and it just isn't happening and it just perks along, etc. But that's not the God.
out of the Bible. And it's not the doctrine of election, which is clearly taught in many places. Ephesians 1, God shows us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in the sight. He knows us by name, Romans 9. Before the twins were born, Jacob and Esau are done anything good or bad. He knows them by name. He knows mm -hmm. that they're going to be vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. So he doesn't want anyone to perish. Now, some say he's got a general desire for salvation and doesn't want to send anyone to hell. The parish clearly here is perish eternally, not mm -hmm. just dying physically, um, but everyone to come to repentance. He, he wants it, but he doesn't decree it. And that's one possible way to look at it. But if you get a zero in on the actual words Peter said, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He's, he's not just generally patient with people. Hmm. He knows very well that the reprobate will never repent. Yeah. He will not be taking the heart of stone out and putting the heart of flesh in, in their case. He's not waiting for them. He knows, you know, in one sense he's waiting because he's holding out his hands to them uh, and, and he offers, he shows great patience toward them in mm -hmm. one sense. But he's not waiting for them to repent. Those are the elect. Yeah, well, and that's the message even in Romans 9 that God bears with uh, even those who won't be saved with great patience yeah. so that he can display his mercy to the yeah. vessels of mercy and wrath yeah. Uh, for those who are, are not aware. So bottom line, he's going to say it again in a few verses. The bottom line is that the Lord's pa patience is all about salvation. He's waiting for the elect to come to faith. Yeah. Now, in what way will the day of the Lord come like a thief? Mm. How should that make us prepare for the coming of the Lord? Yeah, I mean, in, in Matthew 24, and then you also see in, in Mark 13, uh, there's preparation for the end of the world and second coming of Christ and all that. And he's very clear. You don't know when your master's coming. It's like the owner of a house who goes and leaves the house and leaves servants in charge of the house, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door, keep watch, because you don't know when your master's coming. You don't know when the owner of the house is coming. You don't know. And if he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. Hmm. Be at your job. Be alert, be awake, be aware. He tells parables, the five wise and five foolish virgins. Don't think, oh, he's never gonna come. Have your oil ready, your lamp ready. Be ready, be ready, be ready. That's what this is all about. So you don't know when he's coming, so be ready at any time. And that's, that's what he's getting at here. So fundamentally, he's saying the day of the Lord is gonna come when you don't know that he's coming or when you don't. It's, it's mm -hmm. like a thief in the night. What that means is, is un unannounced that you've had your announcement here in the text yeah you're not getting another one and an angel's not saying by the way it's coming in the next 24 months <laughs> right. that will not happen hmm. we just need to be ready that's good now what does verse 10 teach will happen when the lord returns you talked a little bit a while ago mm -hmm. about uh, the elements or the heavenly bodies yep. we're starting to get into that sure all right so the uh, the he heavens will disappear with a roar mm -hmm. Whew. I mean, the stars will, it says in, in Revelation 6, will fall from the sky like late figs dropping from a fig tree. So, you know, just dropping out of the sky. Mm -hmm. um, and the heavens will disappear. So the heavens, plural, you have the sense of the created order of the heavens and the earth. So that would be the sky and outer space. Everything you look up and see. Another analogy, it's like the sky rolls up like a scroll receding. It's just, you know, like one of those those shades that you pull down, spring loaded, and you, boom, you know, and up it goes. Boom. So it just rolls up. Mm -hmm. um, so the heavens will disappear 
with a roar. And I don't know what that roar would even sound like, like a thermonuclear blast. And speaking of that, let's get to the elements now. Mm. Um, it says the elements in this translation I'm reading. You've got heavenly bodies. It's strange. Mm -hmm. um, the Greek word is stoicheia, from which we get stoichiometry, which is the, the, the science of chemical compounds and how much of this one goes into that to make up the chemical. So the compounds. So you've got atoms, which are, you know, the periodic table. You've got hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, all that. Those are the atoms. Basic building blocks of all the physical stuff in the universe. Those are the elements. The elements, elemental table, the periodic table of elements. Every physical thing in the universe is made up of those atoms. I think that that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the basic building blocks of physical stuff. Mm will be destroyed um, by fire. Now what's interesting is, there's an analogy here with the water flood and the fire that's coming. The water was there. It was there all along. It was up in the sky, it was in the floodgate, floodgates of the deep. God didn't create a bunch of new water. It was in the clouds up above and it was in the, the deep recesses of the earth down below mm. and out it comes. I think in the same way, the heat for the atoms is in the atoms themselves as we've seen since the atomic age has come. Mm. Uh, nuclear fission, the breaking apart of the atom. Now we know that in Christ all things hold together. So in the nucleus we have these protons and neutrons. The protons are all positively uh, charged. They should repel. But God holds them together. In Christ all things hold together. Imagine if he just releases them and you're talking about a tiny, tiny amount of uranium, you know, enriched uranium or plutonium and look what it does to a whole city. Well, that's just a tiny amount. Imagine every atom in the universe letting its energy go by the formula that Einstein gave us, E equals mc squared. All the mass in the universe unleashed. And uh, that's, that's the elements melting in the heat. Hmm. So I don't know if this is just a theory. I'm just following the Greek of the word stoicheia, melting, heat, disappearing. Things are going away. I also believe in a resurrected earth. So in some sense, like our bodies, they're going to come back. So it's the same things reclaimed, but made in the new heavens and new earth. That's what, it, what I look. But there's a lot of theology here. Second Peter 3.10. Now, what are the moral implications of the coming day of the Lord? And how do verses 11 and 12 relate, as you mentioned earlier, to the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advance? All right. Peter says, this is what's going to happen. Everything you see is going to be destroyed. So how should you live? Hmm. Well, one of the things, like Randy Alcorn, money, possessions, and eternity, we shouldn't live for money or possessions, material things. Hmm. They're all temporary. You're going to lose them all. No one will take them with, it, with them. We're going to lose everything. And so it should affect the way you look at your physical lives. Everything here is temporary. We are truly aliens and strangers hmm. here. So when you know that everything you see with your eyes, you can touch with your fingertips is temporary. It should cause you to live a certain kind of life. Now, as you said, the language he uses leads right into our two journeys metaphor. The two journeys are the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of, of the spread of the gospel or gospel advance. So what kind of people ought you to be or what kind of lives should you live? He says you ought to live in holiness and godliness. 
So that's putting sin to death. We should, you know, we should not live for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life if everything here is temporary mm. and will be destroyed in God's heat, in the fire. So don't live for that, those things. Live a holy life. Put sin to death. That's the internal journey. And uh, 2 Peter 3.18 says it. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but you should live that kind of life and you should look forward to the day of God, to the day of the Lord. You should be excited about it. Like, excited about a cataclysm of fire? No, not so much that, but what comes beyond it. Hmm. Like like it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, God, uh, Christ, endured the cross. So for what's coming after the big fireball, the new heavens and the new earth, the redeemed in glory, wow. Hmm. That is going to be incredible. So we should look forward to that, anticipate heaven, think about heaven every day, and speed it's coming. Now you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Speed it's coming. Uh, okay. How? Right? Well, external journey. Yeah. I think we do it by evangelism and missions. Hmm. Remember, what is he waiting for? We he's already said he's waiting for yeah. people to repent. He's waiting for people to be saved. He's going to say in a minute, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. It's all about salvation. Well, what role do we have? Much. Our role is as witnesses. So the way we look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming is by sharing the gospel and seeking the elect that they might repent. Because that's the counter. When the number of unconverted elect people goes to zero, the end will come. Yeah. And verse 13 says as much, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is what we're looking forward to uh, as we face the end, not mm -hmm. with fear for those who are in Christ, but with great anticipation. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing statement. Isaiah uses it, uh, mm -hmm. the new heavens and new earth. I look on it as all one, it's not two different things. Um, the image in Revelation is of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. I believe, and I preached this yesterday, I believe in a union of heaven and earth in the final state. Hmm. There, there's a unity of the heavens and the earth. The new heavens and the new earth become one to some degree. Um, and so I think of it that way as the heavens as the place where God has his throne. But that's going to be the earth too. So it's all, it's not like two thrones. He's going to have his earth throne. He'll spend some time there every, every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays in heaven. He'll be on his earth throne. And then he'll ascend and go up to his heaven throne. No, I don't th see it that way. It's just, it's one throne and new heaven and new earth is all kind of one in some beautiful way. So we're looking forward to this new heaven, new earth, and what he calls the home of righteousness. Mm -hmm. So that's where righteousness dwells. That's where only righteous people will be. Done with sin. No more sin. We're looking forward to that and yearning for it. Yeah. I love verse 14 as well. seems almost like what we were talking about with verse mm -hmm. 10, because uh, that day will come like a thief. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So there's right. this way that believers are supposed to live in anticipation of that day coming and not knowing, right? Yeah. So there's there's a way that we're supposed to be pursuing life in this world in anticipation of that. Amen. I mean, this is the consistent teaching on holiness in the New Testament. Hmm. Romans eight thirteen. You know, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. You'll perish. You'll go to hell. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Misdeeds of the body, the, the acts of the flesh, are always tied to the physical world that's going to perish. 
So to learn to think differently about your body and about your 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 stuff, your your hands and your your eyes and your stomach and and all of your bodily drives and and all of your feelings and emotions and desires to control all of that with the eyes of faith to see what's coming and to live a pure, holy, spotless life. Mm-hmm. That's the call of this chapter. Yeah. And Peter in verse 15 and 16 now revisits this language of patience and here introduces, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, some of Paul's writings. Yeah. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just mm-hmm. as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Then verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I've always thought that was helpful. Uh, When Peter acknowledges that some of what Paul writes is hard, I'm like, okay, I'm not alone here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is very, very important here. So, um, you know, God's patience is all about salvation. So he circles back on that, kind of, you know, underscores that again. The reason he's waiting is to save people. So get busy with the Great Commission. Hmm. Get out there with the gospel. And Paul wrote to you about these things. We don't know which of Paul's epistles he's referring to here. Might not have even made it into the New Testament. Um, You know, it seems that Paul had a lot of letters. And some of them were scripture and others were just helpful. Hmm. Good good books. I would love to have... Paul's non-canonical writings. Wouldn't that be great? That yeah. that set would sell. That set would sell. God in his kind providence chose not to give it to us, but Peter alludes to it here. Or he might just be alluding to canonical scripture here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, in this case, it is scripture because mm-hmm. uh, Paul's writings here are scripture. And he calls it uh, scripture. And he says, um, as, he, as um, the other scriptures. Uh, so... Uh, as people distort uh, as they do the other scriptures to their own mm-hmm. destruction. So he, that's a very important statement about the New Testament canon. Yeah. That's the Apostle Peter saying that Paul writes scripture. Yeah. But he says that some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. And what that teaches is an understanding of the, of the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith says mm-hmm. not all scriptures are equally clear in and of themselves. Or, or equally plain alike unto all. But the milk, the basics you need to be saved, are clear enough so that by a sufficient right means of the, of the ordinary means, you may obtain to an understanding. Mm. You read it, get the vocabulary, yeah, you'll get it. But there are some things that are actually pretty hard. And Paul writes some very challenging doctrines that are difficult fully to understand. Even Peter, filled with the Spirit as an apostle, had a hard time understanding. And then he went on to say that ignorant and unstable people distorted those scriptures. They twisted them um, as they do the other scriptures. And so basically some have taken Paul's writings and distorted and twisted them willfully Mm. into false doctrine. Mm -hmm. So be careful about that, he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, and and the care that I think that we should have also is connected to that uh, idea that there's uh, authority in, in these writings. That yeah. because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about in other podcasts, yeah. the, these shouldn't be trifled with, and they certainly mm. shouldn't be twisted for your own personal gain or selfish yeah. interests. And Peter, I'm sorry, Paul knew that. He he said, um, you know, uh, fundamentally, uh, the Thessalonians accepted their preaching not as the word of men but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. He knew that as an apostle, he was speaking the very words of God to to those people. Mm -hmm. He also said, um, you know, uh, concerning uh, the scriptures that, or concerning his his writings in 1 Corinthians, he said, if anyone 
is a prophet of the Lord, right? So the prophets that were there in, in Corinth, let him acknowledge that what I am writing is the Lord's command. Hmm. So you, you, you're a prophet? Okay, then you know what I'm saying is God's word wow. for you. That's the confidence Paul had in writing that very complex and difficult book of 1 Corinthians. Anyway. Hmm. Now, how does verse 17 warn us? And what should this verse lead us to do? Well, he's talking about ignorant and unstable people that distort the scriptures. Those are false teachers. He'd already given us a whole chapter warning us about false teachers that are going to come. So what he's saying to the, this, this group of Christians who is reading uh, Peter's letter, he's saying, be aware, be alert, be careful about the distorters of scripture, the scripture twisters. Um, Paul warned the Ephesian elders, even from your own number, men would arise and distort the truth. So there's that distortion. It's it takes something true mm. and pushes it beyond, so it looks weird, like a like a, a funny house mirror, you know, that makes thin people look fat or wavy or something like that. They distort a truth beyond boundaries mm. and go too far with it. And so those are false teachers. So since you know that's coming, be on your guard, be alert. And don't be, he says, carried away by the error, error of lawless men who fall from their secure position. So the idea is, is um, be very, very careful. You're in a secure position, a good, solid, orthodox, doctrinal position. Watch yourself and be careful about false teaching. Now, verse 18 is a phenomenal place to conclude uh, this podcast and our study of First and Second Peter. Uh, I wonder if you would just share with us the connection here. Help, help us understand our responsibility in sanctification and then any final thoughts you have. For right. Us. And so what's contrasted in verse 17 and 18? What's 17 is if you're not careful, you're going to fall from your secure position. Hmm. You're going to be, uh, you know, led astray by false teaching. And you're going to thereby fall from your secure position, meaning an orthodox doctrinal position. But he already began this little epistle, Second Second Peter, saying, "Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and a goodness knowledge. So add, add to things, add to things, grow. If these qualities are yours in increasing measure, he's talking about growth. So here he just sums it up. He said, instead of falling from your secure mm -hmm. position, take your secure position and develop it." Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we grow in grace, and that's primarily because of the ministry of the Word of God. Let God's grace make you grow. What is growth? Well, grow in grace and in Christ-likeness. What does your translation say for that? It says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, so maybe that's not directly Christ-likeness, but it is the knowledge of Christ. And I think that really means conformity to Christ, mm -hmm. to be conformed to him. Grow in Christ-likeness. Become more and more like Christ as you know him and as you, as you put into practice the things he teaches. That's a sanctification verse. It's growth. It's a growth verse. I would say that's probably my number one sanctification verse. It's like, what is sanctification? Mm. It's a progressive growth into Christ-likeness, 2 Peter 3.18. Well, that's our desire for uh, all of our study of the Word, right? That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Peter ends, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now, this has been episode 14 in our Peter Bible Study podcast. We want to thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. 
Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.